I want to talk to you this morning for a few minutes about the transitional blessing. There's a blessing from the Lord in transition. The seasons of change come in all of our lives, and they are painful and rewarding. That's, that's the paradox. Sometimes seasons of change, like leaving your kids off at college, are painful but rewarding. It's an inevitable part of growing up. You have to cut the strings. So you know our story. Our story is that in 1976, we founded Covenant Church in Dallas. And in 2016, which is 40 years, that's the number for transition in the Bible. In 40 years, we transitioned out, set Stephen, our son, in, and moved on. There were some painful aspects to that. Someone asked me recently, do you not miss being there every Sunday and doing what you did every Sunday? And I said, sure, there's times that you miss that because I was a racehorse led to the starting gate every Sunday morning for 40 years, and there's a change. But I said, here's the thing. And I really kind of said this spontaneously, and then I thought about it. And I thought, wow, is that, is that true? And it really is true. What I said to them was, I could go back and do again what Stephen is doing now every Sunday and doing very well. I could do that still. But Stephen can't do what I'm doing in D.C. See, we all have to be in our season, and then when that season finishes, I'm going to use a strong word now, we, we sin by staying too long in a season and missing what's coming next. And the reason I use that word sin is because sin, when you break it down, means to miss God's mark. It's not a specific behavior, it is to miss the mark that God has for your life. So you can stay in a season too long and miss that. I want to apply an example of that. Some of you here may be runners. I was never really a runner. If I was a runner, even when I was in sports, I would have been a sprinter. I was a short distance guy. I'm not a long distance runner. My legs are too short. There's a guy out there somewhere about seven and a half feet tall that has my legs. Because I'm 6'3", but I only have a 32 inseam. I'm a short-legged guy. So I was not a long-distance runner. But I like short-distance relays. In the Olympics, one of my favorite things to watch in the Summer Olympics is the 4x100. And there's a young lady that was in our church for years, Sarah Davis, who ran in those 4x100s in two Olympics. And she ran with the Flo Joes of the world and all the, those, uh, those world-class runners. And I talked to her once about applying for me some of the principles of relay running to these changes in life that we go through. And she taught me that when you're running in a 4x100 relay, there is marked on the track two lines for the handoff zone that's 20 meters long. That means on your lane, First of all, the obvious rule is you have to run in your lane, and there's some good preaching in that right there, too, just running in your lane. So running in your lane, you come to a mark on the track, and then 20 meters later, there's another mark. Now, you're running wide open fast as you can, but the next runner has to take that baton. Listen carefully. The most dangerous time in a relay is the handoff. Almost anybody can run 100 meters fast. 
at that level, they can all run 100 meters fast. But the drama happens, and sometimes tragically, these young people practice for years and mess the handoff up and drop the baton, and they're out. Now, watch this. Sometimes you don't even have to drop the baton, but if you grab hold of the baton before the first line or after the 20-meter mark, you're also disqualified. Why? Because you took too long. You took too long. That handoff has to happen within that 20 meters. I'm dealing with pastors all the time now who are in a transitional place, and many of them have waited too long. I met with one of them a couple of weeks ago who is more than 10 years older than myself and trying to figure out what his next is because you can wait too long and miss a window. This applies to your business, folks. This applies to your marriage. This applies to raising your children. There are things that have to happen within a time frame. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I think it is, says it this way. And the birds used to sing about it. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season. Watch this now. And a time to every purpose under heaven. So we've heard lots of preaching in the last 10 years about all of us having a purpose, but every purpose in our lives is attached to a specific time in your life. That's why you must not be cynical at New Year's. A few years ago, we were going to have a great New Year's service and prophesy good things over the New Year, and a man said to me, you know, I don't know why you do this really, because it's just going to be more of the same. It's going to, the calendar is going to go from December 31st to January 1st, and it's just more of the same old stuff. And I said to him, absolutely not, it's more, not more of the same old stuff, because, and I quoted that verse, the Bible says there's a time to every purpose. That means in 2019, which is just in a few months, there are going to be unlocked purposes that open up in your life that couldn't in 2018 because it wasn't the time for that purpose. Does that make sense? So in that 20 meters, they have to do that handoff. And so the key is that one runner runs on the outside of the lane and the other runner prepared to take the baton runs on the inside of the lane. And this is what I learned. I was told that the runner in front that is at a standstill waiting on the runner behind them to hand them the baton has to try to anticipate the baton being handed to them but cannot really take any action because the chances are they're going to mess it up if they do. So she said, what we had, this is not an NCAA rule or an Olympic rule. This is a team rule. We had what we called the no peak rule, which means when you're in your lane waiting on the runner coming in, finishing their leg, the only duty that you have is to be positioned properly in your lane, put your receiving hand as far back as you can, turn your palm upward and your thumb in 
and hold your hand just like that. And then we had what we called the no peak rule. Why? Because if the runner anticipating the handoff is peaking and trying to anticipate when to take off, it's likely that they'll mess up the handoff. So the only thing you do is wait until you feel that baton being set in your hand and then you take off and run like crazy when it's been put in your hand. But you can't grab it before it's your turn. Now what does that mean? That means that we ought to see every generation finish strong and it's really not up to the next generation to determine when their time starts, but that last generation finishes strong and hands the baton to the next generation, and it needs to be within that zone. Let me talk to you for a moment about a transition in Scripture that was huge with one of our great leaders in the Bible called Moses. You know Moses? Moses probably had more delegated authority Put in his life by God than any man in the Bible. This is a man who stretched out his walking stick and an ocean divided in two. This is a man who led two and a half million Israeli slaves that had been 430 years in Egypt out of Egypt in one night. This is a man with huge authority. But the Bible tells us a story about Moses that is interesting. When they went into the wilderness and God had to care for them because they hadn't had time to establish themselves as a nation. They had no supplies. They were in a desert and they needed food and they needed water. So God told them, I've invented this heavenly food called manna. In Hebrew, that literally translates to what is it? Because we don't know to this day what that formula was, but they ate it and lived in perfect health. If I had that formula, I'd be a multi-billionaire because they ate a helping of that every day and lived in perfect health. The Bible says that their eyes didn't grow dim, that their shoes and clothes didn't even wear out. It was something so powerful that it renewed their bodies and they lived in health, but they had to have water. So God said to his leader, Moses, listen for transition now. God said to his leader, Moses, when the people need water, here's what I want you to do. Wherever you've come to on your journey, I want you to take that walking stick and find a rock close by, and that Sinai is full of rocks. There were plenty of rocks to choose from. And he said, take that stick and just strike any rock that you choose, and I'll break open that rock, and water will come forth. Now, a scientist did the math on this and figured that in order for two and a half million sojourners in the wilderness to get one eight-ounce glass of water, it would take a flow of water 15 feet wide, six feet deep, and one and a half miles long in order for every one of them to get one eight-ounce glass of water. So Moses would strike a rock, and a river of water would flow out of a rock, and all the people would satiate their thirst with fresh water from this rock. And they did that every time they needed it. Then God spoke to Moses, his dear friend and leader, one day and said, Moses, I want you to change that practice. Here's what I want you to do. The next time the people need water to drink, don't strike the rock. Just speak to it. And Moses said, okay. 
They went forth, came time to need water, and Moses couldn't change his mind. The great leader he was, he couldn't transition. Well, it's always worked this way, and that's the way we've always done it. We're just always going to keep on doing it this way. Listen, please hear this. Nothing but God is always and forever. Everything else for us changes. So Moses pulls out the rod, strikes the rock, and guess what happened? In total disobedience to God, he strikes the rock, but the rock opens up and gives the people water, and they all drink. And Moses makes the fatal mistake of thinking everything's fine. And while the people are drinking the fresh water from the rock he struck, God pulled his faithful servant aside and said, Moses, let me tell you the saddest news that I've ever had to tell one of my servants. What you just did in disobedience to my command to change cost you your spot in the promised land that you seek. I'm going to let you die in the wilderness because a Joshua generation is already being prepared to be raised up and I'm going to call the next leader, Joshua, who will do what I tell him. You've been at this too long, Moses. You're acting by habitual practice and you won't change. You're stuck. So you're not crossing Jordan. You're going to die on this side of the river. And that's what happened. And they carried Moses' bones into the promised land for him to be buried in the new land. He didn't make the journey because he would not change. Doesn't that sound like a simple instruction? Look, instead of striking the rock, just speak to it. It's a new day, Moses. Nope, not doing that. It's always worked for us. We're going to keep doing that forever. That's just really dumb. And it really cost Moses a lot. But all of us do that. What we think has always worked, we think is always going to work. And it doesn't. Things change. So that caused what I call the Moses dilemma. The Moses dilemma is that when strike the rock, transition to speak to the rock, the Moses miracle became the Moses mistake. So what used to be a miracle is now a mistake because God said, don't do it that way anymore. Now, the Joshua generation is ready to rise up and Moses delivered the people from Egypt, but Joshua organized them into a nation. Now, I'm going to say something I want you to hear. A new generation has a new way of hearing. So that requires a new way of speaking. So I have to recognize, as difficult as it may be, I want to stay fresh, I want to hone my skills, I want to be a, a good communicator, I want to share a word that I feel like anybody can hear, but I have to realize this. My son Stephen, for instance, who's a faithful young man and a great call of God on his life, he doesn't speak, communicate, or preach the same way I do. You wouldn't listen to Stephen and say, that's a clone of his dad, Mike Hayes. Doesn't do it just like I do it. And in fact, he had to wrestle with that in his earlier years, and we would have conversations where he'd say, Dad, I just don't 
do it like you do it. I don't know how to do it like you do it. And I said, Stephen, don't even try to do it like I do it because God's going to give you a word for your generation like he gave me a word for my generation. I am a different generation than you. Literally, you are the next generation because I had something to do with generating you. And so now you are the next generation and the next generation is going to hear differently. It's going to hear differently. They use different language. This is a generation that, that uh, senses differently, that fears different things. In fact, I was reading an article the other day that this is the first generation that's maturing right now into man and womanhood that was raised in the post 9-11 era. So this generation has fears that my generation didn't have because that didn't happen until I was a mature adult. So you handle it that way. But when you're born and the whole world looks like it's on fire and thousands of people are jumping out of a burning building, it, it impacts you. For instance, our generation, I'm going to make my generation or my folks' generation, the former generation, really sound bad. They were wonderful. The World War II generation was maybe the greatest generation ever. But for church life, this generation now, way different than my folks' generation. Like when you went to church with your folks in my generation, you just hoped you got taken home that night. Because, I mean, they were going to have church. And if you wanted to sleep, you slept up under a pew. Or you went to children's ministry. And if they had a real move of God, and by the time they got ready to go home and had ministered to everybody, they forgot you and you were still sleeping up under a pew. And so your folks would get home and start counting kids and say, well, where is Mike? I don't know. I thought you had him. No, I don't have him. Well, he's still at church. And nobody worried about that. That wasn't aberrant behavior. That was normal. Folks now, they're not going to do that. Like in Dallas, when we built the main sanctuary there, there then when we built the school and also housed the uh, young people and children and youth ministry, not nursery, but the kids from about four or five up, is about 200 yards across the parking lot. And they use golf carts and all that. Well, my folks' generation and even Kathy and I's generation that was not an issue. But I can tell you, to young parents now, they don't want their kids 200 yards away in another building. It's like, what are they doing way over there? They need to be right here up under our, because I'm worried about that. I'm, I'm a 9-11. I'm a post-9-11 baby. Stuff happens. So safety is a lot more a concern to a generation now than it was. And that's just one example of hundreds I could use about the changes that come in generations. So I want to give you the transitional blessing formula. First of all, understand the times. Our pastor Randon announced to us today the change in their leadership position or location, if you will, by moving to another campus in the Triumph Network of Churches by going to Sugarland, And though that's a traumatic thing, I noticed their precious children were wiping tears along with their dad because that is an emotional thing. And we recognize that. And it'll be emotional 
for some of you because there'll be some celebrations and some parties and some goodbyes and even though it's not so long forever and we'll still be in your life and we're one church and all that it's still transition so understand the times secondly understand that ultimate victory is coming for all of us so I want to read a scripture passage and we're going to bring this in for a landing here with a few thoughts that I think are important Acts chapter 3 verses 19 through 21 and I'd like for you to mark this and if you don't have your Bible with you and I notice that a lot probably use their smartphone or whatever and some just trust that I'm telling you the truth and the screen because you've got your arms folded and no Bible in the house and so I, I'm not sure how you're going to get the information except you probably have photographic memory and it's all going to go down I want you to have this for real for good because this passage is one of the most important in the Bible you're ever going to hear let me get let me set it up for you the Apostle Peter is uh, recently baptized in the Holy Spirit in the upper room along with 120 other souls and then 3,000 a day and then 5,000 the next and then the church is, is exploding with growth and they're establishing doctrine. Doctrine means the teaching of and about God. Doctrine is important. That's not a dirty word. And when doctrine is bad, it always leads to bad outcomes. For instance, and I'm not picking on anybody, but I'm going to use this spontaneously for an example. It's not premeditated. We all grieve with the issues we read about and see in the news right now that, that is going on in different dioceses of the Catholic Church with abuse of children. And it's, un, it's being uncovered now that it's not remote. In one diocese alone in the, Pitts, in the Pittsburgh area of Philadelphia, tens of thousands of now grown adults are coming forward who were abused by their priest thousands so much so that the pope is now making a statement about it and saying we have to get to the bottom of this and this is this is our darkest day you know where all that comes from ladies and gentlemen bad doctrines lead to bad outcomes it's a bad doctrine to twist scripture to say things it doesn't and demand that a priest as a man cannot marry the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches when a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing. And I know that the Apostle Peter, that the Catholic Church, I'm not against the Catholic Church, but I am a historian and I don't rewrite history. Let's tell the truth. The Catholic Church celebrates the Apostle Peter as their first pope. But we know that the Apostle Peter was married. How do we know that? because Jesus healed the Apostle Peter's mother-in-law. I have no idea why you would want a mother-in-law if there's no wife involved. <laughs> if, if, if Peter had not had a wife, there's no reason for him to want to have a mother-in-law. Even though I had a great one, <laughs> there was a joke there. I had, to sh I had to go there, all right? But what is my point I'm making? When you make prohibitions that the Bible doesn't teach, it always leads to a negative outcome. And I could go into a lot of examples about that. When you go further than Scripture goes, it goes to bad outcomes. For instance, with some of us that were raised in real uh, constrictive, uh, conservative Pentecostal roots, 
where women especially, the men didn't get picked on so much. The women, though, bless their hearts. You can't cut your hair, women. You've got to do something else with it. And you can't wear makeup. And bless their hearts, some of those women needed some makeup. <laughs> Even an old barn looks better with a coat of paint, I'm telling you. Some of them, and, and I'm, I'm really being mean now, but now, now, now I got your attention. Don't look at your wife right now, sir. This is not a good time. And, and they couldn't wear jewelry. Couldn't wear jewelry. Couldn't do anything with their hair. Couldn't wear makeup. Now, does the Bible teach all that? No, that, that's going further than the Bible goes. One of the favorite scriptures they used is Peter said, let not your adorning be the fixing of your hair, the wearing of uh, jewelry and expensive garments, but let it be a meek and beautiful spirit in the Lord. Did that scripture prohibit doing anything with your hair or fixing up? No, it didn't. Peter just said, don't let that be your anointing because that can't take the place of the grace of God in your life. That's all that was saying. But when you build a whole doctrine on that, here's the danger of that. When you build a whole doctrine on that, you say, well, what's the harm? Other than being a little ugly, what is the problem with not doing any of that? And I'll tell you what the problem is. And it's the most dangerous, disgusting outcome you could ever mention. And that is, it inherently and subconsciously teaches us that somehow we are saved by the things we do. And we aren't saved because of anything we do. We are saved by the shed blood of Jesus alone, and it doesn't have anything to do with what you do with your hair or you don't do with your hair or whether you wear jewelry to look like Mr. T or you have no jewelry at all. That's not what saves you. Can I get an amen? amen. So what happens? Bad doctrines always lead to bad outcomes. So let me give you this from uh, Acts chapter 3. Peter says, I'll read it for you. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Let me summarize that verse and tell you the three huge things that, that are taught in that verse. Number one, that repentance brings revival. Number two, that repentance brings the second coming of Jesus. Number three, that Jesus at his second coming fixes everything. That's what that verse says. This is why this is so important. Let me break that down now. I don't intend to despiritualize the act of repentance today. But back to sort of the evangelical or Pentecostal or fervent spiritual roots of Christianity, repentance inherently carries a connotation of tears, sorrow. In fact, in the old days, we had altar benches, we called them in the church. They were actually originally for many, many years called mourner's benches. If you felt like you had sins you needed dealt with, you needed to come and cry. You needed to get down at an altar and cry. Now listen, please hear me. I've had some genuine, unbelievable breakthrough experiences at altar benches. 
I'm not trying to despiritualize it, but this word in this passage, this verse, if repentance to you means crying tears, bowing at an altar, thumping your chest, laying on the floor, telling God how sorry and how bad you are, all of that may be good and fine, but that's not what this word means. This word, repent, is the Greek word metanoia. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. The best example of that in nature is a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. That's a metamorphosis. You know what happens there? I used to think before I studied that, that a, a butterfly came from a caterpillar. I knew that. But I basically thought there was a cocoon involved, and I didn't know exactly how that worked. But to reduce it down to something real simple, I thought that, that, a, that a butterfly was basically a caterpillar that had grown wings because it looked like a little worm and then it gets wings. But I found out that's not what it is at all. I found out that what happens is the caterpillar crawling around and if he doesn't get stepped on on a sidewalk or captured by a child and put in a glass jar with a hole in the top and some grass in there so you can watch them because we used to call them woolly worms and they're really pretty cool and some of them got some nice colors and all that. Something happens in that woolly worm and there is a signal that goes off and he crawls up a tree and he weaves for himself a cocoon and he hangs upside down in the dark and something is triggered at the DNA level of that caterpillar that God put in him and he melts. When he melts, he is literally transformed into a new creature called a butterfly. He is not a caterpillar that grows wings. What he formerly was melted and became the building materials for a whole new creature that then breaks out of the cocoon and flies as a butterfly. It's the most beautiful story in nature of the picture of metamorphosis. And the, and the Greek word translated repent is metamorphosis. And it literally translated means change your mind. And we could actually say it this way, we use this term now, change your mindset. Let me suggest some things. Sometimes we need to change our mindset about our marriage, about our kids, about our health, about our church, about our city, about our career, about someone on our job, about our attitude. We may be too critical, we may be too impatient, we may be too unkind. And, and in the Spirit of God, there is the possibility for us to change. I'll say something that you could disagree with, and this is not Bible doctrine, so you have that perfect right. None of us can disagree with something that is established God truth. This is just me. But this is my opinion from many years of experience now. Without God in one's life, I don't think there is really much potential for permanent change. I really don't. With all due respect to the AAs of the world and the NAs of the world, addicts typically go to those meetings and a lot of them go, 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 and I respect that so much. We have a friend at home that's a massage therapist for Kathy and I that's been in our church many years, and he goes to AA every day because if he doesn't, he'll fall off the wagon. 
without God helping him, I'm just telling you, there's little hope in our flesh of us really changing our minds. But with God, we can do that. So he says, repent. Well, how do you do that? You change your mindset, and God will come to full assistance of that. And then what happens when we change our mindset? Okay, in this passage I read for you, and I won't go too deep here. I'll keep this really surface, and we've got to finish. But there are two times in this three-verse passage that, the, that the, the word times is used. The first one is times of refreshing. Is everybody okay? You listening today? The second one is times of restoration. Let me share this with you, and I'll teach you a quick Greek lesson because the New Testament was written in Greek, and you want to understand some things about Greek. You're going to learn four words here quickly. The first one is metanoia. That's the Greek word for, for repentance. The second one is times, and it's translated kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. Kairos means God's right to interrupt normal time at any time and do what he chooses. Kairos time is a divine interruption into the normal course of time. God has that right. Let me give you an example. My precious mother had her 89th birthday a couple weeks ago, was doing well, has some dementia, but getting around fine, never had any problems with that. And then two days ago fell, getting out of bed, broke her hip, spent all day yesterday in surgery, and the doctor said it's going to be 8 to 12 weeks with toe on the floor only. She cannot put any weight on this for 8 to 12 weeks, and we'll do rehab and so forth and try to get her back on her feet. After all, she's almost 90 years old. Now, so my sister, bless her heart, Jenny, and pray for her. I don't know what I'd do without Jen to see about my mom. She's there all the time. Our, my other siblings aren't in the area, and Kathy and I are gone. And so Jenny is there with her. But in the normal course of, of time, which we call chronos time, that's the other use of the word time. Chronos means chronological. That's where we get chronological. That's the way your watch works. That's why you can know when Christmas is going to be next year, because chronological time doesn't change. It's one day following the other, and we know how to do that. Kairos is a God time, an interruption in time at any time by God's choice. So if nothing happens miraculous, mom is looking at 8 to 12 weeks of rehab before she can put weight on the hip. Does that make sense? But God. I got a little film Jenny sent me of her praying in the spirit and tongues as they wheeled her into surgery. So, you know, in Kairos time, Chronos time, mom's got 12 weeks on her back. In Kairos time, Jesus can walk in her room and touch her body, and she can come out of that bed. As Stephen, who pastors our church now, did when he was 16, hit by a car, in a coma. Doctors told us he's not going to talk. He'll never walk again. He won't be normal. And Jesus walked in his room and said, that's okay. That's what they think. That's what chronological time says. But Kairos says, I'm going to walk in and wipe a cloth across his head that he saw in a vision. And Jesus spoke in his ear. And he said, Dad, he was so close I could hear his, uh, feel his beard on my face. And he said, Stephen, they're going to give you medicine to tell you you're going to have seizures the rest of your life. But don't take one of those pills. You'll never have a seizure. Because the only evidence of this accident you will have 
is the scar on the side of your head from brain surgery, and that will be the evidence to tell people, I had this, but God did this. That's a Kairos interruption where God does what he can do. And I'm going to tell you, here's what this verse says. If you want a Kairos moment to change the season in your life, repent. He says, repent, and I'll send times of refreshing. And that word times is kairos. So I'm going to challenge you, Triumph, with something today. I want you to go home and in your meditative thought, and even right now, I'm asking God to bring it to your mind. And the question that ought to be going over in your mind right now is, Father, what could I change my mind about that would bring a season of blessing in my life? Because God's promise is you change your mind and I'll change your season. That's the promise. You change your mind. Let me apply it as I finish up. We heard an announcement from our pastor today. There's some transition going on. Pastors Randy and Ray are coming back here. They're going there. And, and you know what? I could sit out here in this audience as a faithful believer in this house. I don't know what they're doing that for. You know, bless God, I'm a tithing supporter around here. They didn't talk to me about that. I don't know if I'm going along with that at all. In fact, I'm going to dig my heels in and make them drag me all the way to the finish line. That's, that's, that's your right. That's your opportunity. But the healthier thing to do is to say, you know what? Time and chance and change happens to us all. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to believe God. I'm going to go with the flow. I'm going to trust my pastors. I'm going to know it's all going to be good. And everything God does is in perfect design and his ways are far above my ways. And if my mindset was to grumble, complain, not like, I don't want to change, I'm going to change my mind. And when I change my mind, God will change my season. That's a promise. Then he finishes with this. The other times is chronos time. And he's, what does he say about chronos time? He says in chronological time... Jesus will reappear, and that's another Greek word called the parousia. We call it the second coming. When Jesus comes back to this planet, it's translated here in English that the times of, quote, restoration of all things. Some of you really need this because this gives me, sometimes when I'm really in the dark, hanging upside down, feeling like I'm getting melted, this helps me. This phrase, restoration of all things, is an English phrase to cover the meaning of one Greek word. It's a big, long word. You pronounce it this way, apocatastasis. You've heard this word before. Anybody remember that old movie about the Vietnam War called Apocalypse Now? Have you ever heard the word apocalypse? That's from a Greek word, end of time, end of days, apocalypse. Well, the word apocatastasis means everything restored in one moment of time when jesus reappears on this broken planet everything broken will be fixed this is echoed in the book of revelation when god says behold i make all things new how much power does that take for god to speak and in a moment fix everything broken and that's what we have coming that's what the apostle paul called our blessed hope Stand with me if you would today. How many of you learned anything good from the Word of God you're going to use for your life? 
How many of you will take the personal challenge of the Holy Spirit to say, before this day is over, I'm not going to sit on this word and do nothing with it. I'm going to ask God to bring to my mind what I can change my mind about that will bring a season of refreshing in my life. Hold up your hand if that's you. I'm going to change my mind about something. And here, while your hand is raised, here's what I'm going to declare over you. Father, in the name of Jesus, every precious soul whose hand is raised right now, I pray that you literally bring to their mind, in their thoughts, bring to their mind what you're calling on them to change and give them the grace to do it. And when they change their mindset about what you lead them to change, you're going to send a, a, a season of refreshing into their life. Father, we pray that over this entire church, that this church change our mindset about how we do, how we think, how we are, and you send a season of reviving, refreshing to this entire house that rocks this city in the name of Jesus.